Hey, New Hope, how's it going? John here, coming to you from my dining room. This is a little bit different experience for you. As some of you may have been aware, my wife and I had the privilege of going to Israel for 12 days. Regrettably, the trip was awesome, but regrettably came back and tested positive for COVID. So thankfully, I'm vaccinated and boosted and, uh, and just having some cold symptoms. So I'm grateful for that. Welcome your prayers for a quick recovery and look forward to being with you live and in person on Easter. Uh, but we thought, uh, I've missed you. So I've been gone for a few weeks. So wanted to record uh, the sermon from home. Different experience, hope uh, it's okay. Uh, Jorge Mario Bergoglio was born in 1936 in, in Buenos Aires, Argentina. Uh, he was a bouncer and then he became a priest and he kind of rocketed up the ranks. And when he was a young man, he was given responsibility to oversee a lot of other priests. And he didn't really know how to lead. So he led with kind of a top-down leadership, uh, power from the top, and it did not go well, as you can imagine. Uh, the Vatican, it got so bad, the Vatican ended up interceding and stripped him of all responsibilities. So at the age of 50, uh, he had no responsibilities, lots of free time. And he decided that he was going to learn humility. So he spent a lot of times in the slums of Buenos Aires, begin to build relationships with the people. That's when he started the practice that he still continues to this day. Any person that he meets, he asks them if they will pray for him. As he began to learn humility, uh, he began to get more and more responsibilities added to the point that in relatively short order, he became the Archbishop of Buenos Aires. And uh, he continued to practice humility. He, he didn't take uh, the car that was given to him. He took public transportation. He didn't take the housing that was given to him. He stayed in a small apartment, used a space heater, uh, fixed meals in his own little small kitchen. Uh, and, then in, and then he was elevated to the role of cardinal. And when Pope John Paul retired, it was between uh, Cardinal Bergoglio and Cardinal Ratzinger, for who would be the next pope. And it was a close vote, but in a true... Uh, practice of humility, uh, Cardinal Bergoglio stepped aside and asked that Cardinal Ratzinger would be the next pope. When Pope Benedict retired, uh, Cardinal Ratzinger was in line. And when he chose his name of pope, he chose uh, a saint that was known for humility and simplicity. And we know him as Pope Francis. And Pope Francis, as he learned humility, continues to practice humility, doesn't stay in the papal residence, doesn't want the papal cloak. I'm not even sure what that is. Instead of a gold ring, he asked for a silver ring. He didn't get a new cross. He kept his cross as a cardinal. And uh, he lives in a small little uh, apartment. He heard that uh, a statue was being put up of himself in the slums of Buenos Aires, and he asked that it be torn down. So many stories of Pope Francis's humility. One of my favorites is he was at a World Youth Conference, and there were millions of people there uh, to hear him and to see him. And at the end, he was going to the play, and he, he turned to his entourage, and he says, where's my briefcase? And he always carries a little simple briefcase. And I says, sir, we already put it in the plane. He's like, I want you to go get it. I carry my own briefcase. And the press noted it was the first pope ever to carry his own briefcase. Pope Francis uh, was learning and had learned and is practicing the Jesus principle that all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. We're in... Uh, Almost the final week, we're getting to the end of our series on the Gospel of Luke that we've subtitled The Great Reversal. In Luke, uh, Jesus is turning uh, everything upside down and inside out, including us. During the season of Lent, that's the 40 days uh, uh, before Easter, we've taken, uh, uh, we've been exploring the parables of Luke, 
uh, and Luke uh, watches Jesus and the disciples as they travel and journey through Samaria, which is not the way most Jews went, to Jerusalem where Jesus would die and rise again. Along the way, Jesus uh, is teaching them through uh, this device called parables. And the Greek word just means to throw alongside. It's like you're walking around somewhere and you see something that shouldn't be there. And you're like, what is this? And parables help uh, us, kind of how we've defined it, is they're short stories that help us imagine a different reality. And in this case, a kingdom reality. One of my professors said that parables operate kind of like the wardrobe in Narnia, if you're familiar with those parables. You step through them, you step through the story, and you begin to experience a whole different world. So today we're going to uh, look at our last parable as uh, we enter Holy Week, uh, and today is Palm Sunday, and next week is obviously Easter. So we're looking at our last parable, and it's one that you, you may know. Uh, before we dive into it, I want to pray, and then we'll have our public reading of Scripture. God, thanks, uh, thanks for today. Uh, thanks for the folks gathered, for the worship, uh, for uh, the addition of Seth and Amy and their families to our team and our church. We're so grateful for them. And thanks for technology, that even though um, I'm, I'm uh, a little sick here, I'm able to still, in, 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 in a sense, be with our uh, community. I look forward to being with them in an embodied sense uh, next week. We pray your Holy Spirit would uh, allow this parable to come alive, uh, reshape us and reform us, help us to literally walk through that wardrobe and experience a different reality today. Uh, we pray these things in the matchless name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen. Uh, Sarah will be reading our scripture this morning. Take it away, Sarah. A reading from Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Awesome. Thanks, Sarah. Uh, this is a pretty straightforward, it's, it's a small parable, and many of Jesus' parables were small. This is a pretty straightforward parable with a surprising twist at the end. And so let's unpack a little bit. Uh, to really understand the power of this parable, we have to understand how the original people would have heard it and understood it. Jesus' kind of preamble to the parable, uh, Luke gives us, it says that Jesus was talking to some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. The first line of the parable, and please follow along with me, we're, we're, in, um, we're in Luke 18, 9 through 14. Uh, the first line tells us two men went up to the temple to pray. Uh, there'll be a, a picture that comes up. We took lots of photos, so you'll have lots of photos in the coming years from our trip to Israel. Uh, but there's lots of people praying at the Western Wall today. I had the privilege of praying at the Western Wall, and that was no different in Jesus' day. Uh, people would come to the temple, and there would be a sacrifice twice a day, in the morning, in the evening, a sacrifice of atonement, or they would kill an animal. And then the priest that was on that day would then go inside the holy place and, and do the incense offering. And then that priest and other priests would come out and then pray over the people 
who would gather, and then those people gathered would pray themselves. So Jesus is describing a scene that his, his listeners, those traveling with him through Samaria, would have absolutely understood and know. It says two men went up to the temple to pray. Uh, there's hills all around uh, the temple, but the temple is up on a mount uh, inside those hills. So you cannot get to the temple without going up. So again, the people would have been nodding along. And so Jesus presents uh, two people to us, two men. Uh, one's a Pharisee and one is a tax collector. So we've talked about both of these folks a little bit even in the series, but let me recap and I'll try to be concise. It's really important for us to understand who these people were in the minds of the original listeners so that this parable works and, uh, and maintains its power in our lives. So Pharisees were one of, there's several different religious groups, five in particular, and the Pharisees uh, were one of them. Uh, Josephus says, he was a historian, says there's only 4,000 Pharisees in Jesus' day. But they were known, uh, as, they, as compared to the other groups, as the ones that were most observant to the law. They were really, really serious about reading God's law. Many of them had memorized it and practicing it. And the people would have seen them that way. They would have seen them as faithful and committed. They often went above what the law required. They were also the party of the people. They were of all the groups. Uh, the common people liked the Pharisees the most. So Jesus' listener, uh, probably unlike us, would have seen the Pharisee as the embodiment of a righteous person. Uh, they would have seen them as the good guy. They would have liked Pharisees. It would be the equivalent of, of a Sunday school teacher uh, that knew the Bible really well and prayed a lot and was kind and godly and generous. That's what the people would have thought of when Jesus is given this parable. So there's the first person. The second person is, would be, have been the polar opposite in the, in the people's minds in the first century. This is a tax collector. Uh, so Rome uh, was oppressing the nation of Israel and, and many other nations, and they had heavy taxes, all kinds of taxes, four or five different kinds. And they, uh, they recruited tax collectors. And so some Jewish people took them up on it. And so for the common Jewish person that was just getting taxed at every turn, they would see a Jewish tax collector as someone who was a greedy trader. Um, they, they would have, uh, furthermore, most tax collectors we know uh, took extra tax for themselves and were getting rich. That's the greedy part. So the rabbinic teachings of the day, they would compare tax collectors to robbers and murderers and liars. We have this phrase throughout the Gospels, tax collectors and sinners. So it was just kind of this phrase, like the worst types of, of persons. Tax collectors were the first century version of, of, of mobsters, if you will. So we have these two people. And we go back to the Pharisee. So the Pharisee is standing, picture the scene. You know, a lot of, uh, we, we saw the picture of the Western Wall earlier. So they're in this courtyard, uh, the, the court of the Jews, and they're gathered to pray after the sacrifices, morning or evening, we don't know. And the Pharisee stood in the temple, and the Pharisee prays this prayer. God thinks that I'm not like these other people, the greedy, the dishonest, and the adulterous. People like this tax man. So the way he says that, we can assume uh, and tax man is Eugene Peterson's uh, translation of that. I, I like that. Somebody use that. So we can assume the tax man was right in earshot of the Pharisee. That they're, it's, a, it's a big court, and they're both Jews, so they both have, have the rights to be there. And the, the Pharisee is booming his voice, and he's this respected, righteous person. And he's like, thank goodness I'm not like all these other lowlifes, if you will, and especially this man. Like, he was probably shocked that the tax man was even there and, and praying. Jesus' listeners would have been nodding along. They would have been, yep, yep, the righteous Pharisee can't believe this greedy, traitorous tax collector even gathered for prayer. Uh, they're, they're, they're right with Jesus, nodding along. The Pharisee, I don't think, was necessarily trying to be pompous. 
Uh, I think he was being very sincere. I think he knew how devoted he was to the law, the good that he did, uh, the good person that he was, and he was very sincere in saying these things. I think we read pompousness into the parable. We know a prayer commonly prayed by the Pharisees was, blessed are you, O God, that you did not make me a Gentile, a woman, or a money grubber. Sorry, ladies, a very patriarchal society. These were the types of prayers Pharisees would, would pray. So you can imagine the scene. Uh, he goes on, the Pharisee, as he's praying out loud, imagine this, uh, and, 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 and notes and proclaims how he fasts twice a week and ties all of his income. We won't get into the details, but this is above and beyond what the Old Testament law uh, required. Then we, the camera shifts to the tax man within earshot, uh, you know, a little bit away, and the tax man prays a shorter prayer. The tax man falls to his knees, beats his chest, and prays a simple prayer, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. In the Middle East, they still do this to this day. They will beat their chest at signs of anger or anguish. So if you ever see this, it's really quick and repetitive. And it's, a, it's an outward sign. They would see their heart as the, the thing that was deceived, as, as, the, as the place that sin resided. And so they're seeing their sin, and they're beating their chest. They're angry. They're anguished. It's interesting to note uh, that this, this action of beating your chest Almost always it was done by women, and, and Jesus' listeners would have known this. In this instance, this man's so desperate, uh, he's, he's falling to his knees. He's a rich man. Uh, so in, in the broader scheme of things, he has a lot of honor and respect for his wealth. He's falling to his knees, and he's beating his chest and saying, Lord, have mercy on me. The same prayer is going to be used by Luke in Luke 18. Uh, we won't look at this passage in the series, uh, but that's where the blind man uh, cries out to Jesus as he passes by. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's a different Greek word in that prayer. Uh, the Greek word in this uh, prayer is a word that's only used in the book of Hebrews. And it literally means atonement. Atonement is a repairing of something that is not right. So this man, this tax man, would have been there for the morning or evening uh, atonement sacrifices. He would have seen the animal slaughtered. He would have heard the cry and seen the blood. Uh, he would have seen the priest go into the holy place and smelled the incense and come out. And this tax man was not a churchgoer. Uh, something brought him to church that day. Something led him there. And as he watched this ancient rite and this, this sacrifice of atonement, he was deeply moved. And yet I think he didn't know what to do with atonement. Uh, he felt desperate. He saw his sin. He wanted to be redeemed and made right. But the law required anyone who extorts anyone had to pay them back plus a fifth. Can you imagine this man who had just extorted everyone? Where do you even begin uh, to find atonement? I think that's the, the, the mental uh, makeup of this tax man. And so really he's, he's crying out. A more accurate translation of the Greek would be like, Oh God, as he sees this, let it be for me. Make atonement for me, a sinner. And he doesn't, it's a desperate prayer. We don't know how it plays out. He's not going to know how it plays out. He wants atonement. He doesn't know if he can get atonement, but he thinks it's worth a shot. So, simple story. Jesus tells this tight little story, and it's called an inverted parallelism. That's a, a kind of a nerdy Bible term. But all that is is, is a, a, a kind of writing that holds up two things or two people side by side. And in this case, the Pharisee and the tax collector. And if you read through and look through, you can see exactly what Jesus is doing. It's, a, it's, a, it's brilliant. He is, uh, the Pharisee is loved and respected. The tax man is hated and despised. The Pharisee stands, the tax man kneels, uh, the, the Pharisee prays long, the tax man play, pays short, uh, the Pharisee prays with his eyes to heaven, the tax man prays with his eyes down in the dirt. 
The Pharisee, most notably here, here's the most important comparison, proclaims his own righteousness. Uh, it could be called self-righteousness, whereas the tax man proclaims his unrighteousness. Again, Jesus' listeners the whole way would have been like, yep, 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 they're tracking until the final section. And this is where they would have been absolutely stunned at what Jesus says. Jesus' concluding statement would have been seen as a nimshal. A nimshal was a kind of a, a rabbinic teaching uh, brought in fr- fr- from, from the Hebrew background. It was kind of be like the moral of the story. So tortoise and the hare, the moral is the slow and steady win the race. So what's the nimshal in this instance? What is Jesus' moral? We don't get that in every parable. Some parable we're just left to try to figure it out. But in this one, Jesus gives us the nimshal. He gives us the moral of the story. And what is it? He says, and here would be the stunning statement, the tax man and not the other went home right with God. This phrase in the Greek, uh, some of your translations may be went home justified before God. That word just means made right with. The word uh, justice and righteousness are often synonymous in scripture. Uh, So the tax man went home right with God. This is, uh, we've looked at so many great reversal statements and instances in the series. This would be the most stunning, I think, by far. In Jesus' kingdom, the people would have seen uh, the, the, the Pharisee is far more righteous than the tax man. Jesus flips the script. In Jesus' story, the tax man is more righteous uh, than the sinner. Uh, this would have challenged everything Jesus' audience and his disciples would have thought about God and would have thought about righteousness. And then Jesus adds to his nimshul, and he adds this statement. For all those who exalt themselves will be humble, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. The Greek word for exalt can be translated to deliver or to redeem. So what Jesus is saying is that all those who try to redeem themselves and try to make their way forward through self-righteousness will be humble. All those who realize they have no shot at righteousness and come to God in a state of unrighteousness and look to God to be redeemed, to be atoned for, to be made right, will be made righteous. Jesus is telling us righteousness cannot be earned. Righteousness is a gift of God offered to all. The only thing that blocks God's free gift of righteousness to us is our self-righteousness. Another great reversal. We could call this a Jesus proverb. Um, We know Peter quotes it. We know Matthew quotes it. We know uh, further on, Luke quotes it again in a scene where Jesus is at another dinner party, another table, and he heals this man with swollen arms and legs and the Pharisees. He's at at the home of a chief Pharisee, and they, 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 they don't like it. They don't like that Jesus is healing on the Sabbath. And Jesus chastises them for caring more about animals than, than people. And then he goes on to chastise them for how they're doing their table. And they do it just like the Greeks and Romans. We've talked about this a little bit. The host had the highest level of honor, and then to the right and left, that was the next level, and then on down. And the people closest to the host got the better food and the better wine. Uh, tables were a place to showcase who you are and how awesome you were. And Jesus gives them another great reversal. Jesus says, when you come to these dinner parties, take the lowest place. And then he repeats his Jesus proverb. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted again and again and again. Jesus tells us the seat at his kingdom table will be filled by the humble and the lowly. All right, a couple things. As we talked about with parables, to really understand parables is not to sit back and kind of look at them with a scientific eye. It is to allow the story to take hold of us. Uh, As I've said, uh, to understand what a parable might mean to our lives, we must enter the parable and we must allow the parable to enter us. So a couple things. As I enter the parable, as I hopefully allowed it to enter me, 
couple of reflections I had. One is, uh, we've used this line before, I think, uh, the way up is the way down. The first century Greco-Roman world was dominated by hierarchy. It was all about climbing the ladder and making a name for yourself and going higher and higher and higher and listing your accolades everywhere you could. Uh, we have uh, ample archaeological evidence of people building themselves big uh, monuments with all of their accomplishments. Even gravestones uh, are, are littered with the accomplishments of people, long, long paragraphs. This is what it was in the, in the ancient Greco-Roman world. You wanted to go higher and higher. You wanted to make a name for yourself. At least we don't struggle with that anymore. Uh, that would be sarcasm. Enter Jesus in this great reversal kingdom. Jesus is the first one that introduced humility as an ancient virtue. Aristotle, Plato, all of our writings, we never see humility positioned as a virtue. Jesus was the first one. Humility would have been seen as weakness. So when Jesus shows up on the scene and announces himself as gentle and humble in heart, that would not have been impressive. Uh, in the Hebrew, in the Greek, in the Latin, the word humble means uh, to, uh, it just simply means low. Uh, negatively, it means to be put low, and that would be our word humiliation. But positively, as Jesus talks about it and Luke talks about it, it means to choose to lower yourself. So my definition of humility is just simply to go lower. Humility in Scripture is the antithesis of pride, which is the root of all sins. That word pride is translated sometimes haughty or high of heart. Uh, pride is the root of all sins and the road to death. Humility is the doorway to life. A couple, uh, we sometimes misunderstand humility. So a couple quick things. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. We are the beloved. You are the beloved. Humility is thinking of ourselves less or thinking of others before ourselves. Humility is not humiliation. Humiliation is done to us. Humility is something that we choose. Humility is not false humility, or I would call the humble brag. Uh, our family is, is a fan of the show The Office. Uh, it, we think it's very funny, and uh, there's one instance where Michael Scott is interviewing for a new job, and the guy interviewing says, tell me about your strengths, and Michael Scott goes, well, let me tell you about my weaknesses. I work hard, I care too much, and sometimes I can be too invested in my job. That's a classic example of the humble brag. That is not humility. And humility is also not having no ambitions. We think of that sometimes. If our ambitions are tied to the Spirit of God and the glory of God for the sake of the world, that's totally okay. And finally, humility is not being a doormat. I think we misperceive it that way. And if anybody ever uses the call of Jesus to be humble, as, a, as something to power over you and in even an abusive way, no, that's not right. And you can always come talk to me or our staff about that. Humility is the choice we make as followers of Jesus to follow Jesus and to go lower. We're stepping away from the craziness of the world that tells us to climb the ladder, and we choose to go lower. We don't have to make a name for ourselves because we are ruthlessly loved by the one whose name is above all names. Uh, when we choose to go lower, we discover the life that is truly life. And yet, just like the first century Greco-Roman world, we're just so caught up in this web that we're told it's a stepladder world. We've got to go higher and higher and higher to be successful. That's how we're all shaped and formed in our Western American society, because we have stepladder hearts. And so to understand what Jesus says and the call that he makes upon our life is perhaps just as earth-shattering and stunning as it was to Jesus' uh, first-century listeners. I heard a pastor once say, the world is all about ascending greatness, going higher and higher. The way of Jesus is descending greatness. Uh, the way of Jesus is not going higher. It's about going lower. The way up 
is the way down. So my, my challenge to us, my challenge to myself and our church is that we must be people that practice humility. And maybe that's a weird thing, but I absolutely think that's what Jesus was calling us to do. Uh, years ago on our honeymoon, my wife and I, uh, we, we were in the throes of love. And, you know, the, the first couple of days of our honeymoon, we were traveling up to where we were going to go backpacking. And we stopped at a coffee shop, got coffee, and we got uh, a pastry to share. We were at that the stage of our relationship that you just share everything, including pastries. So uh, we're sharing this pastry, and uh, she's taking a bite, and I'm taking a bite, and we're listening to music, and it's just romantic. And then I look down, and there's essentially one bite left. It's a pretty big bite, but uh, one bite left. And uh, Corey's not eating it. I'm not eating it. We're listening to music. And I pondered it, and I thought, you know, I'm a little bit bigger, so, you know, I probably, you know, need that bite. And I looked over at her, and she was glancing out the window. And I know you're all thinking, no, you didn't. And uh, I absolutely did. I quickly grabbed the last bite of pastry and stuffed it in my mouth. And this is when I learned my wife has eyes in the back of her head and she's looking out the window and she says, I saw that. And uh, I think that's when she knew she was uh, in for it. Uh, that was not going higher. That was going lower. Uh, in, in a million ways every day, we're confronted with this choice. Uh, do I go higher or will we go lower? Uh, if you're parents and you're parenting uh, together and, and your child wakes up in the middle of the night, uh, will you go higher or will you go lower? You open up the fridge and if you live with other people, roommates and family members, and there's the last sip of milk or the last bit of leftovers or the last bite or the last cookie, uh, will you go higher or will you go lower? Students, you, uh, the new student at school that comes into the lunchroom and maybe they're kind of awkward and they haven't found their group yet and they're you know, feverishly looking around for someplace to sit, uh, will you go higher or will you go lower? Costco parking lot and you see this incredible parking space open up and you hit the gas, which I drive a Prius, so that doesn't mean much. And right as you're about to turn in, another car is coming. It's like, you know, the, the standoff in, in, the, in the old west. Uh, will you go higher or will you go lower? I know I'm getting crazy now, right? Or you go in Costco. I do this thing when you check out uh, or a grocery store where you try to see which line is going to be shorter. And I've even gotten out of a line and gotten in another one that I think is moving faster, hip checking people out of the way. Uh, when we're confronted with that, will we go higher? Will we go lower? Uh, if you have siblings and you're out and younger siblings are trailing along behind, you can't bike as fast. They want to hang out with you. Will you go higher or will you go lower? You're at work and your spouse texts or your friend texts and says ETA. And uh, you know that what confronts you at home is probably harder than what you're doing at work. Uh, will you text back, you know, I got a couple hours left or will you go higher or will you go lower? Uh, the Cowboys are on America's team. Go Cowboys. And uh, the game's tied, and there's two minutes left in the fourth quarter. And your wife wants to talk to you. Your friend wants to talk to you. Your child wants to talk to you. Will you go higher or will you go lower? Uh, Pope Francis, I love, and some of you have perhaps seen uh, these scenes, but wherever he goes, he washes feet. And he always seeks out the most vulnerable, the most lowly. And he was asked one time, uh, why he washes feet. And I'm sure it drives his security crazy. He's going down again. He's doing it again. Uh, and he said, Jesus washed the disciples' feet, so we should wash the feet of others. For him, it was that simple. He also said that if we do not practice humility, love remains blocked. 
So New Hope, the followers of Jesus, what does it look like to go lower this week? What might it look like to practice humility and say, here's a way to say it, you go first, you you be first. What does it look like to fall to our knees and, and grab the towel of a servant and, and wash some feet? Um, so the first thing that struck me as I allowed the parable to enter me and I entered the parable was that in Jesus' great reversal kingdom, the way up is the way down. A second reflection I had is I think Jesus is establishing a new world order. Let me unpack that uh, a little bit. So that was kind of near the end of the parables. They're near the end of their Samaritan journey. Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem, Passover feast, along with all the other pilgrims, and immediately goes to the temple and clears the temple, flips the tables. And there's be a picture that comes up. Corey and I had the opportunity to stand right where they think that Jesus flipped the tables, which was super cool. Then Jesus comes back in the morning and he stages this scene. And we, we call this Palm Sunday, and that's today we're celebrating Palm Sunday. Jesus knew that the Roman generals and the Roman Caesars, when they came off of victory and entered a season, would come in with all kind of pomp and ceremony. They would enter on a massive war horse and have an ornate crown and be wearing purple with embroidered gold. And along the way, the streets would be lined with people waving palm branches or sign of celebration and joy. And the people would be laying down their cloaks so not even the animals' hooves would touch the dirt. For the people would see the Caesar as a god, and the Caesar would see himself as a god, the general would see himself as god. And then trailing along behind the Caesar and his entourage were a line of prisoners, now slaves, chained up. Jesus knows all this. Jesus' listeners knew all this. Jesus' disciples knew this. So Jesus deliberately stages a scene on Palm Sunday where he, and in Jerusalem, there's eight gates, and the, the, the conquering generals and the kings would always enter through the royal gate or the northern gate. Jesus does not enter through the royal gate, even though he is Israel's king, and he's, he's clearly leaning into that. Jesus decides to enter through the eastern gate, which is the very gate that the unclean people were supposed to enter, people like the tax man. So Jesus enters the eastern gate along the way. I don't think there's many people there. I think his ragtag misfit group are there. They're kind of, you know, waving some palm branches and throwing down a few cloaks. And Jesus chooses not to ride a war horse, but a donkey. It's kind of a silly scene. He's, he's trailing his legs. Uh, Jesus has no crown, although he will have a crown very soon. It'll be a crown of thorns. Jesus doesn't have the glow of victory about his face that a general or a Caesar would have. Jesus is, is weeping profusely. And along behind Jesus is no one. There's no line of prisoners for Jesus came to set the prisoners free. Jesus is staging a scene to mock the powers that be, to thumb his nose at the powers that be, to show that the emperor has no clothes, that he is the true king and he is inaugurating a new kingdom where those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus enters the city. They go right to their Passover meal, which has been set up. Jesus is the host of the meal. He's the rabbi. He's the oldest. He would have been seen as the paterfamilias of, of, these, of these young boys. And it was the disciples and a few others that were gathered for this sacred Passover meal. And then Jesus does this stunning thing. He gets on his knees and like Pope Francis, uh, takes uh, the role of a slave or a servant. For that's who washed feet. Jesus, for his young disciples, washed the dirt and the mud and the dung from the animals, which would have been in the road and on their toes and on their sandals, and washed their feet and showed them and embodied what it looked like to be uh, humble and then be exalted 
in his kingdom, for then he would go to the cross, of course. So Jesus is, is totally flipping the script. He, he is totally uh, introducing for all of us a new way of doing life. And, he, uh, and it's interesting to note, and some of you may know this and then know this scene, right at that same meal, the Last Supper, right after Jesus has entered on a donkey through the eastern gate of the unclean to no pomp and ceremony, right after Jesus gets on his knees and washes the dung off their feet, the disciples start an argument at the table, can you guess it, over who is the greatest? <laughs> James and John are arguing who gets to sit at the right and left in this kingdom. And that would go back to the table scene, the places of honor. And we're, we can be quick to judge, uh, but it, it's also a warning to us how quickly our, and how deeply our hearts are hardwired to go higher, to make a name for ourselves. Finally, the final reflection I have um, is something I never saw. I've read this story many, many times. I never saw, never even thought about uh, before coming back to this parable and studying a bit about it. Um, I think the, 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 the Judeo ethic of humility is so interwoven into our society now because of followers of Jesus that when we come to this story, we see it the exact opposite Jesus' first century listeners would have seen it. Because we now value humility so deeply, even though few of us practice it, we value it, we know it's a good thing. When we read this story, uh, we look at the Pharisee as the bad person and the tax man as the good person, I think typically. And here's what happens. Here, here's the big reveal, and here's the thing that just literally caught my breath when I realized it. Are you ready for it? I'm not sure that you're ready for it. When we look at this parable, when we read the parable, most of us, I think, I don't want to be judgy, but I think most of us come away thinking, thank God I'm not like the Pharisee. And the minute we think that, the minute we say that, we're caught in Jesus's parable. The minute we say, thank God I'm not the Pharisee, in Jesus's parable, we become the Pharisee. A pastor I know uh, named Larry Osborne wrote a great book called Accidental Pharisees. I don't think anybody, any of us chooses to become a Pharisee in this regard. I think it's, it's a silent killer. I think it sneaks up on us. Let me ask you this question, and I want you to take it seriously. In the course of your day or your week or the next month, as uh, you even reflect back on how you carry yourself, um, do you ever come to someone or you read a news story or see something happen or you have an interaction and you think, Thank God I'm not like that person. Go ahead and raise your hand. No, I'm just, <laughs> I absolutely do. Absolutely 100%. I think you do as well. I think, man, thank God I don't have theology like that pastor. Like, holy, like they're crazy. Thank God that, you know, the political party that I follow is so much better than the other. Those fools. Thank, thank God. Thank God I got the whole mask, vaccine, COVID protocol thing figured out. Those poor sheep that see it differently. Uh, thank God I, I, uh, I would never slap another human on live TV. Thank God I'm not a Seattle Seahawks fan, especially since they don't have Russell Wilson anymore. Too soon, sorry. We do this all the time. I could go on and on and on. Well, we do this and we're caught by Jesus' parables and we begin to elevate ourselves. Uh, this caught me as I was reflecting on this parable on our recent trip. One of our stops was uh, Yad Vashem, which is the Holocaust Museum. And it, I'll be honest, it, it absolutely wrecked me and broke my heart. Um, I'm really glad that we got to go. 
But I remember one exhibit I was standing in front of. It was uh, pictures of maybe 30 of the SS officers who were essentially in charge and did some, and led some of the most horrific evil acts in the history of mankind. And reading about them and learning about them, I just stood there for a while and looked into their eyes and uh, learned that you know many of them were Christian. They were raised in Christian homes. They went to church. Half of them had doctorates. Most of them went to university. So they were highly educated. And I was thinking, like, how? Like, how did you get to be, and then it hit me. It, it, it got me. I was thinking in my mind and heart, thank God I'm not like you. And I was caught by Jesus' words. I was caught by Jesus' parables. It absolutely breaks my heart and also inspires me to try to, by God's grace, make the church more beautiful, to look out at churches and followers of Jesus and see how we become accidental Pharisees. Christians are known now for their angry rhetoric towards people who see things differently, our othering, our judgment, even though Jesus tells us again and again and again not to judge. We're known for looking down on others, for our self-righteousness. There's something deep and insidious in all of our hearts that wants to earn what we get. And that's the antithesis of grace. That's self-righteousness. And our prayer that we have to come back to was embodied by this tax man. Uh, all of us need to be praying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus' stories should all lead us to recognize that there but for the grace of God go I, that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Jesus' point is not that the Pharisee is better than the tax man or the tax man's better than the Pharisee. Jesus' point is that we're all messed up and we're all broken and we're all in need of redemption and atonement and recognizing that should drive us to our knees and beating our chest and crying out for God's grace. Uh, Father Robert uh, Capon uh, has this great quote. Uh, he writes a book on parables. Let me, let me read it to you. Do you see now what Jesus is saying in this parable? He is saying that as far as the Pharisee's ability to win a game of justification with God is concerned, he is no better off than the publican. Another word for tax collector. As a matter of fact, the Pharisee is worse off because while they're both losers, the publican at least has the same sense to recognize the fact and trust God's offer of a free drink. The point of the parable is that they are both dead and their only hope is someone who can raise the dead. For Jesus came to raise the dead, not to reform the reformable, not to improve the improvable. Only when you are finally able with the publican to admit that you are dead, will you be able to stop balking at grace. It is admittedly a terrifying step. You will cry and kick and scream before you take it, because it means putting yourself out of the only game you know. As we prepare for the table, and I'm not there with you, but what if the pastor will come up and lead communion? Uh, I want to challenge us to enter just a space of prayer and confession. So uh, you do this however you're comfortable doing it. I know I'm leading you from my dining room, so that's a little weird. Um, but if you're comfortable, uh, I want you to close your eyes and kind of hold out your hands like this. Uh, if you want, and, and don't feel like the need to do that, you, there's, there's space to get on your knees if, if you want to do this. And I just want to invite the Holy Spirit into our midst. Uh, Holy Spirit's already here and working and moving, and Holy Spirit, move among us and illuminate our minds and our hearts, allow us to see blind spots, allow us to see areas that we're becoming accidental Pharisees. And I want you to think through your life, and I want you to, to take a moment now to talk to God about uh, moments in your life, even over this past week, that you have been dependent on your self-righteousness instead of looking to Jesus 
uh, for God's righteousness. And that's all it takes to just take a glance at Jesus and just put our lives in Jesus' hands and look to Jesus for righteousness. It's the only place it comes. It's the, our only hope. And if you've never done that, you can do that right now. But those of us who have done that, we so quickly go back. So I want to give you a moment just to quiet, to think and reflect uh, areas in your life this week that you've been dependent on your own self-righteousness. And now I want you to think of uh, people in your life. Uh, I've got them. I know them. People that maybe you encountered that you don't know, that you saw uh, through the uh, the car window as you pass them by quickly, or people you read about in the newspaper, or uh, saw uh, uh, something on the news about, or people in your family, in your friend group, in your church, in your school, in your workplace, in your neighborhood that you look down on. And that is not the way of Jesus. And that is the road to death, not life. And I want to give you a chance just to confess that to God right now, and also to pray for those people. So let's let's do that. And finally, I just want to I want to go back to that simple prayer of the tax man. Uh, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I pray this prayer a lot. It's part of like my centering prayer that I practice throughout the week. Uh, it's so powerful. Lord, we need your atonement is what it means. Lord, uh, make us right. And I just want to pray out that prayer a few times, breathing in and breathing out. And then um, I'll just go dark. And somebody there will take over live and come to the communion table. So let's pray this together. I'm going to pray it a couple times. Just pray with me. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner.